I'm Alex Perrine, a staff writer at The New Republic. I'm Laura Marsh, The New Republic's literary editor. And this is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, politics, and media. Each week, we talk to a writer about a recent story. And at the end of the show, we check in with campaign reporter Walter Shapiro, who's reporting on the election for us. Welcome to The Politics of Everything. Today's show, we're doing something slightly different for our first segment. We've asked a few guests to join us to talk about the idea of electability and how much of a factor it should be in the Democratic primary. Is Bernie Sanders electable? Is Joe Biden's supposed electability a core part of his appeal? We wanted to go deeper in this conversation and find out how long this term's been in use, when people tend to use it most, and look at some of the risks of using it. We're here today in the studio with Matt Karp, a historian at Princeton, Rebecca Katz, a political strategist, and Seth Ackerman, a journalist and executive editor of Jacobin. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming to the show, to this empty room. Um, do you want to do the mathematical formula? Do I? <laughs> I do, yeah. I do have a mathematical formula for electability. Um, this came up in an article I read by Jason Zengeli that was from 2007. And the formula itself is even older. It's from 1994. Two researchers named Walter Stone and Ronald B. Rappaport came up with this. But it has a kind of timeless quality. So here's the formula. Candidate electability equals A plus B1, brackets, party, plus B2, brackets, evaluation of C, plus B3, C's proximity to R, plus B4, C's proximity to the average voter, plus B5, C's proximity to party, plus B6, C's nomination chances, plus B7, C's TV performance, plus E. And so, Political science, I love it. It's very scientific. Um, I don't know what any of these terms mean. Presumably they are defined somewhere in the paper. Um, I read that it has an accuracy rate of 25% to 57%. Uh, and so I think it summarizes how confusing, abstract, and incomprehensible the subject is, but also the kind of desire to turn it into a science. Maybe we should go around, actually, and just everyone at the beginning of this conversation give, like, their working definition of electability. I'm Seth Ackerman. I'm executive editor at Jacobin. So electability, I think, is it's this concept where each voter is trying to predict what every other voter is trying to predict every other voter perceives as electable or what they want. I think that there's a lot of situations like this in the world where people are trying to guess what other people are trying to guess. I think the stock market is like that. There could be many different things that people settle on once they come to believe that other people believe that other people believe it. But, you know, they end up sort of settling on some equilibrium, and that's this convention. It's like um, the convention about do we say please and thank you and when and things like that. That's like the method by which society decides what is electable. I'm Rebecca Katz. I'm the founder of New Deal Strategies, a progressive consulting firm. I remember how Trump was made fun of at the beginning, back when we didn't know all the terrible things that were about to happen. We just suspected they would. When he was talking about uh, his cabinet and he wanted people to look the part. And he was routinely mocked for that. But that's how voters seem to be voting right now. They want mm. someone who who looks like they're tough and they can beat Trump. Now, I looked at, let's say, Elizabeth Warren on the debate stage and thought, that woman looks 
as electable as anyone I've ever seen. But other people look at electability and they just see what looks like the part in the movies of who's supposed to be president or a senator. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the biggest challenge. And I would say look no further than the 2004 Democratic primary when they looked at John Kerry and they saw a war hero and said, this is electable. There's no Mm -hmm. way they can come at him for this. I'm Matt Karp. I teach history at Princeton. I feel like there are a couple of different dimensions to how you can talk about or how you could perceive the way that electability discourse works. I think the moment that we're in right now, I agree with Rebecca, it's a lot like 2004. It's structurally the same, you know, a much hated, very divisive sort of Republican president. And you have a Democratic electorate that is hell bent on trying to remove him at all costs. And so the whole question of the election comes down to who is in the best position to remove that president rather than, you know, what is this party? What do we stand for? What are our political goals, et cetera? In, in a sense, you could call that a kind of defensive electability, but I think the concept predates this era in the sense that, you know, the, the period that I'm working on right now in my book on the early Republican Party, the formation of this new political organization dedicated to taking on the slave power in the 1850s. And party leaders are constantly talking about the same idea. Who is the strongest leader for our movement? Who is best positioned to maximize our platform with the average voter, et cetera, et cetera. They use a sort of charming 19th century term, availability instead of electability, sort of. It's like, who's the most available man? You know, it's like Mr. Chase is the pure soul of statesmanship, but I would prefer a more available man. (laughs) Like he's, you know, maybe in the back, you know, doing the dishes or something. So what did they mean by available? What they meant was, and I would call this a kind of, what you could say, offensive electability. Like who is the strongest leader for this insurgent movement to take over and actually win an election? Uh, Some of the activist wing of the anti-slavery movement, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Beecher Stowe said, well, we shouldn't descend to mere availability and we should nominate Charles Sumner or Salmon Chase or someone who has strong anti-slavery principles. We should have faith that the public will come around to those principles. Whereas a lot of the politicos, the former Whigs, even some former Democrats said, look, Charles Sumner won't be able to win Illinois. Charles Sumner can't win Pennsylvania. And it's interesting. I mean, some fairly radical Republicans were willing to make huge sacrifices on the availability dimension. Thaddeus Stevens continually supported the most conservative candidate in every, in effect, Republican convention, John McClain of Ohio, who was like barely anti-slavery, simply because he thought McClain would be in best position to win Pennsylvania, et cetera. But I think that's different from our moment now because Stevens was confident that the party itself was geared around, you know, a very strong anti-slavery platform. Whereas I think that the electability move now is, is, is defensive and kind of anxious rather than purely strategic. I would say that this goes also to a conversation of uh, safe versus risky. And everybody thinks the safest choice is so safe when really all we've seen in recent history is the safest choice is always the riskiest, whether it's Al Gore or John Kerry or Hillary Clinton. And the only risky Democrat Democrat who's actually been nominated in the last 20 years has been Barack Obama, and that's the only one who won. So we have this like pundit brain happening right now about what electability is, and we're not listening to our hearts. I think your point about Obama is is a good point, but I think that Obama's ability to start out as the apparently unelectable candidate and then win opened up a break in history that had not really happened before. I, I don't think that anything it hasn't like happened that. since. Well, I would say that Donald Trump is a figure that people looked at at the beginning and said, this guy can't win an election. All the Republican leaders thought that he couldn't win an election. He was the picture of the unelectable candidate that everybody thought was going to lose. But I think that the reason why he was able to succeed was partly because Obama had won previously. When Obama, you know, was this figure who couldn't win and then he won um, for the Republicans, for the Republican base especially, 
they found that so unsettling. They saw Obama as exactly the kind of person who surely could never win in America, however bad things get, you know? There's a lot of fear about, like, we're going to turn into Cuba, and, you know, they would see these murals, you know, and they would think now he's like Castro, like a revolution. <laughs> yeah. We're in a pre-revolutionary situation. Right. And that was a lot of what, like, the Tea Party sort of psychosis was about. But I think that they ended up um, sort of internalizing the idea that maybe electability doesn't mean anything anymore, and that's why they were ultimately able to go with Donald Trump in the same way that the left, then it went it reversed, and the left now is like, well, if Donald Trump can win an election, surely Bernie Sanders well, coming in elections. Yeah, but yeah. the next day, Bernie Sanders was running ads with Obama, whereas Trump doubled down. Bernie's trying now, I think, to pivot back to establishment just a little bit. So one thing I think that's interesting here is it seems this thinking has always been used in some ways, but it seems to pop up or become more important at certain moments. So electability, in my mind, didn't really come to bear until we had candidates that looked different. You know, for centuries, we just had white men running for president and they all looked quote unquote electable. And then as soon as we started getting women and people of color, we were very worried about electability all of a sudden. That term seems to be used every time you're talking about a woman running for office or a person of color. And you just don't see it the same way around men, except I would say Bernie Sanders and being a socialist is when they talk about electable. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a concept that comes up in moments where potentially radical change is mm -hmm. on the on the agenda. I don't think that's the only way that it comes up, but I would agree with that. That's why Republicans in the 1850s on this radical anti-slavery movement were trying to figure out, okay, some significant disruption in society might be possible. The political establishment might be breaking up. We need to find the strongest horse to sort of ride into that battle. Rebecca, what do you think? You actually work in campaigns. So instead of sort of talking broadly, right. you, you can talk about what you have actually seen on the ground. Right. Okay, so Democrats are very good. Um, they're probably best at winning primaries against progressives. That's what, they, <laughs> that's what they're best that's, at doing. That's my experience. Um, no, I was, so I was on the 2004 John Edwards campaign where we were the last candidate standing against John Kerry. And we saw the establishment really rally around John Kerry. You know, he was the front runner to begin with. And then people saw him up close and they had their doubts. And then he became the quote unquote comeback carry. Remember that? I saw this happening and it's happening again, except that Biden is not as good a candidate as John Kerry was, which is a really hard thing to say for me. But, yeah. um, but when people have their doubts about a candidate, even if they come home to that candidate, they still have those doubts. And then those doubts get reinforced over the course of a campaign. And the problem we have with Joe Biden right now is that he has run for president three times. And the only time he has ever exceeded expectations are the three days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. So it's great, like, okay, here comes Joe Biden. But like, <laughs> what's gonna happen? And what is this quote unquote electability going to do here? Is it gonna just make him coast all the way to November? Or is he just gonna have gaff after gaff? Like, what does the next few months look like? When I think about when the moments that electability comes up, I don't think so much about like a moment in history I think about it that it usually comes up because of a particular candidate who, for whatever reason, has come to the fore but is widely seen as just uh, not fitting the, that mold. I associate the word heavily with George McGovern. That's certainly on the Democratic side. That's the figure that people bring up all the time when it comes to talking about an who is ideologically unelectable. But why does it stick to McGovern and not stick to John Kerry? So I think a big question here, and in fact, what this idea for this episode grew out of, is how often is electability used as a cudgel against more idealistic and left-leaning candidates? Because like you say, with John Kerry, 
that that label didn't stick even after he actually lost. In 2012, I mean, Republicans were facing a parallel situation as we as the Democrats are now and as the Democrats were in in 04. And it was like, okay, Obama, the most hated Democratic president, you know, well, every Democratic president is the most hated till the next one. (laughs) But uh, but I I actually don't remember in detail if that word came up. But but Mitt Romney was surely the electable candidate in comparison to, say, Rick Santorum or Mike Huckabee. But the centrists never win when the... And he lost, too. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The centrists (laughs) never win when the other base is fired up. You don't have your own base fired up. I do have specific memories of reading right-wingers, conservatives, after Romney's loss, making exactly that point, saying we went with the guy who was the picture of electability, and he, sorry, this was something they were saying in 2016, when people were saying, well, surely Donald Trump would be a disaster. And these were people saying, we went with the guy who was the most electable. Yeah, and so they were making exactly that argument. I mean, there's no one who looks the part of president, like, quote-unquote, looks, than Mitt Romney. I mean, (laughs) come on now. (laughs) On both the conservative side and on the left of center side, perhaps even if party elites have been trying to convince them that electability means choosing a moderate, the conservative base has now come to believe that they no longer have to believe that, right? Like, that seems to be what's happening. So what makes the Democratic coalition and the Democratic base different, that it doesn't give in to its own impulse to go with the one they're actually the excited about? The establishment hates progressives. Whereas the Republicans, I think, have now seen the writing on the wall and have been trying very hard to get in touch with their base to like the detriment of society. I think that the Democrats have taken an opposite tack where they just want us to go away. But I suspect that if Rick Perlstein were here, he would point out that in 1964, Goldwater was considered by his party's establishment to be unelectable, too extreme, but too extreme on the right. Because he didn't accept all the shibboleths of the, you know, post-New Deal order. Reagan as well in 1976. Sure, absolutely. I think ultimately it was Reagan's victory that maybe sort of ushered in this, like, long-term shift where they're like, well, it turns out being a gold water can have what we want. Yes, exactly. I do think there's something to be said, though. I'm going to go back to my maybe, like, overly schematic kind of um, difficulty with facing an incumbent presidency that pushes both an establishment and maybe a discourse and maybe even an electorate towards caution. Because if you play that tape backwards, you have who are the candidates chosen to run against an incumbent president working backwards? We have Mitt Romney you know, was the last in that role. Before that, we had John Kerry. Before that, we had Bob Dole, who beat back Pat Buchanan after Mm -hmm. Pat Buchanan won New Hampshire and got the right really excited. And then the Republicans said, oh, no, we need somebody who can, you know, a safe bet to take on Clinton. And then, you know, going back, you had Clinton was the, the last candidate to beat a sitting incumbent president was Bill Clinton in 1992. But again, he emerged as a kind of an electability candidate in some ways, although I don't remember but, that but, primary but, as well. But, but all the boomers who are still in office have all taken that lesson and learned nothing else, no. right? Like, <laughs> all they know is Clinton triangulation. They know that election and they've taken that to heart and they haven't learned anything else. And that is the problem. I think they not only learned the ideological part of the lesson from Clinton, but there's also like a lesson about what an electable president would look like, what kind of person he is, like how does he come off and what are his experiences if it's a man, which at the time was certainly assumed. I mean, I remember growing up, the picture of an electable candidate was a Southern governor, (laughs) relatively young, you know, who looked good for a politician. And if it was a Democrat, you'd add in some sort of maybe like uh, reputation for being like a smart guy. 
And if it was a Republican, you would add in uh, some like religious thing, like a, you know, like they're, <laughs> they're, they're like a good looking politician, but they also have the spiritual side. They're born again or whatever. I mean, I, obviously I'm like painting a picture specifically of Clinton and Bush, but the reason I'm doing that is because their success, I think, spawned all of these imitators who are like, oh, well, now we know what the formula is. But look at what happened to all the Republican governors who ran a couple years ago. They, yep. they had this huge field and they all got decimated. I mean, that's what happened to all the Democratic senators this time around. Mm -hmm. It's so weird that we got to hear. We started, you know, 2020 with this campaign season with so many exciting candidates. And now, I mean, as we tape this, like Biden is rolling out of nowhere. And it's just, it's it's hard to take. I feel like I've seen polling that suggests broadly the Democratic electorate liked all of them. Um, so then they have to make a decision based on other factors. And it seems like the factor they ended up choosing was like, oh shit, Joe Biden, I remember him. <laughs> well, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> that should be a slogan, really. <laughs> Joe Biden, you remember him. But, no, but what the thing is that Democrats are deeply divided right now, but mm. we are united in our desire to beat Donald Trump. I mean, my understanding is that in this particular state of nervous electorate and nervous party leadership uh, focused above all on just dethroning an incumbent enemy, my understanding of the Biden surge was voters were responding very heavily to cues there. I mean, the so-called establishment, but the actual establishment materialized out of almost nowhere. And the argument wasn't even so much explicitly an electability argument. The argument was, it was just almost enacted by all of these other We've politicians. We've all decided. We've all decided. Yeah, we've just decided, and this is the safe choice. I actually feel like it was like safety rather than electability, because electability implies this element of calculation that you laid out with mathematical formulas. <laughs> and I don't think actually even the electorate is doing anything like that calculation. I mean, if you're a loyal Democrat and you do like all of the candidates and you do like all the former candidates like Beto or whatever, then if like several of them all you know, decide and announce that, like, we think the best guy is Joe Biden, then why wouldn't you, in other words, you don't even have to make an independent calculation about who's safe or electable or whatever. Right. You could just say, like, hmm, it's, it's like the same thing about, like, you know, where should I eat lunch? It's like, you know, was that <laughs> you ask a friend, like, was that place good? Was that place good? I trust your judgment, and, you know. But what's so scary about this whole electability discussion, I mean, I was looking at the South Carolina numbers and obviously, like, Biden rolled. But what was so upsetting is he only got 19% um, of voters under 45. So not just millennials, we're throwing Gen X in there too. And I'm trying to think how is the most electable candidate we have doing so poorly with younger voters? And how are you going to win for the future? If we're telling young people now their votes don't matter, and then the next election cycle, they're going to be the dominant voting block. What does that mean for the Democratic Party? My question is, and, and you know, you work in Democratic Party politics, so I'd be curious to know what you think, but like, do they ask themselves this question? Just as I wondered, do they ask themselves as they fall in line behind Joe Biden? Do they perceive that he is, like, in my opinion, actually an incredibly risky candidate in terms of, like, you can't put him no, in I front mean, of a they camera? Only, they, everybody's only thinking about themselves, right? If they're looking at November. If you're Chuck Schumer, you're thinking about your Senate you know, seats. If you're Nancy Pelosi, you're thinking about your House seats. And you're only using this in that calculation, Right. Everyone says, like, well, Joe Biden will make it better for the rest of the ticket. But if you go back to Obama, who won two terms, we also lost a thousand state legislative seats under him. So it's this whole risky and how will he help me that never works, especially when you have the Supreme Court on the line. There is a strange circularity, though, it seems to me, to this whole electability discourse, right? Which is like, um, don't vote for the person who is unelectable, 
because no one else will vote for them and therefore you shouldn't either. So I had this kind of reinforcing thing. And I think that hurt Elizabeth Warren because I think a lot of people who wanted to vote for her were told, oh, she's unelectable, so you shouldn't vote for her. So some of those people... Right, but I mean, this also goes into like the corporate media and who's saying who's electable. I mean, one of the first articles after Elizabeth Warren launch was about whether or not she was likable. And I was like, we're doing this again? Mm -hmm. You know, here we go again. One of the things that I was most disheartened by is in Iowa... Abby Finkenauer, a freshman uh, member of Congress who came in 2018, the year of the women, like, you know, we can do anything kind of stuff. Her fiance was working for uh, Elizabeth Warren. She went with Joe Biden. Joe Biden got destroyed in her district. (laughs) And and that was like her choice of like, this is the safest choice. Biden crushed it in states he had never visited. Like he didn't, he didn't once go to Massachusetts. Bernie was doing huge rallies in Boston and Springfield. Doesn't matter. Everybody remembered the Joe Biden from Obama and they went with him. My concern is what happens with this electability frame when they actually see him every day. Mm -hmm. People haven't seen a ton of him on TV and they haven't seen how he performs now. And so they're remembering a sort of sharper, more agile version of Joe Biden, the Joe Biden that maybe was more electable four years ago, eight years ago. And and the caveat is obviously Trump is way worse and more of a rambler and can't have a thought that goes together at all. But Trump is also the kind of guy who will take a Biden ramble and mock it endlessly in a way that no Democrat ever would. I was about to like think about like the fine distinctions between Trump and uh, Biden's forms of rambling. But I I don't know if that's really... No, this has been playing on my mind constantly. Like I think Trump has a more destructive and aggressive style of rambling. Well, his brain is much much worse. I think he's more more in command of his Mm -hmm. rambling. I I, I feel like he's... You do? In other words, like I think that he rambles for the same reason that like uh, a a completely inarticulate buffoon who's like 20 or 40 or 60 rambles. What I mean is like somebody who is not experiencing any like cognitive decline, but just rambles because that's what, how their brain works. Whereas I look at Biden's rambling and it looks like somebody who is experiencing cognitive decline. This is a room full of people whose beliefs are like to the left of what is considered the democratic mainstream, I believe. And we're having this conversation in which we are predicting because we are confident in and know that Biden will be uh, digressive. He will say well, things- he'll that he will confuse his wife and his sister He again? will say things that make no sense. Like, we are all having this debate about how dangerous Joe Biden will be because we have been watching him and we know he can't be trusted to speak coherently. I don't think it would be going this way if we were a panel on MSNBC or CNN, right? They wouldn't let us do Well, right. <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't allow it. So, but why for, I think, the primarily older and more moderate people who make up cable news producers, are they... I not worried about co- this? No, I think it's coming from the top. I mean, we haven't seen a long Joe Biden speech. I think the only time we saw a very long speech was the night of Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And he had a teleprompter out there. And there were some weird moments, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. And the thing is, like, if this guy is the nominee, we have to lean in there? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, like, I, what, I mean, you know? If, you, if you track the primary, right, I mean, it seems clear one of the really striking features of the way the primary began to evolve last spring, last summer, and even into the fall was the very apparent unwillingness of the Democratic donor class, most Democratic Party officials, and yes, various uh, sympathizers in the media, especially on TV, to really go in on Joe Biden. You know, he was leading the polls and he was a former vice president, so he was the sort of obvious front runner, but he lacked major institutional support and he lacked donations. They were really trying almost any other horse. There was some enthusiasm for Kamala, there was enthusiasm for Pete, some partial enthusiasm for Warren, although strained. 
and then they only went all in on him, basically. And then there was enthusiasm for Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. He got a lot of endorsements. They This was their last card that they could play, and they didn't realize it until very late, and then they've played this card. And it's, well, the, it's no, now say, they're stuck with it. I would say they all wanted to play that card at the beginning. Everybody wanted to be with Joe. But he gave them reason to be apprehensive. Right. right. This is the issue. They all had these concerns. Everybody yes. knows it. And they're still going with him and they're going to prop him up. And it's it's so upsetting that these are our choices based on where the field started. So I want to talk a bit about the riskiness of electability in that case. I mean, Joe Biden is the electable candidate. Um, Quote, unquote. All of that is in uh, air quotes. (laughs) How much of a candidate's appeal is just electability? Because I think if you look at a Bernie supporter, they believe their candidate is electable, but that's not the major part of his appeal. Um, I think that's true of Warren too. With Joe Biden, I have the impression that a major part of his appeal is the perception that he's electable. And and that has almost foreclosed there being any real interrogation of like what his vision for America (laughs) is or what his policies are. Um, And if he does become the nominee, this electability conversation is going to be shut down. I mean, are we left with more than an empty shell, more than just an opposition to Trump? Everybody's now looking, oh, he's rolling in Florida and Michigan. But one more debate or or two or three, however it takes to have a bad debate, then what happens? Then where are we with the most electable candidate we have? Well, so we did some of our own highly scientific yeah. research on this. <laughs> we did. Um, yeah, we, we decided to be political scientists for five seconds. Uh, and we went onto Google Ngram Viewer, which I don't have a huge amount of faith in, but it's I kind of, it, it, it gives you a know. set of sort of interesting data points on a graph that basically shows like the use of a word over time and like where it spikes. And so we just ran the word electability through it and uh, usage of it picks up around the early 1970s. You get a really big spike in 1987, a nice big one in uh, 1994, and then it's gone up again in the last few years. (laughs) Before the early 70s, there was pretty much nothing? Not much at all. And so I think Matt, you know, has explained that different terms were in use in, say, the 19th century. And then one theory we had about the 1970s is that primaries become more important to choosing a nominee. Um, right, and so because, this idea right. of who, who the electorate will choose to be the nominee, perhaps that becomes more important. If That's wants a theory. To, right. I think Just if anyone theory. wants we to share a- the story of what happened between 68 and 72 and onward for choosing a president. The summary of it is that before the late 60s, the normal way in which a president was nominated was that each state party, the Democratic National Convention, the Republican National Convention, these are sort of like diplomatic congresses where each state party goes and sends a delegate and then they sort of confer and figure out who they're going to nominate. The way that it used to work was that each state party would basically do that and, and they did it within the the party, the party workers, the party cadres. Like for the most part, if there were primaries at all, they were only sort of advisory. They didn't actually decide. The decision was made at the state party convention by the delegates. That was the traditional way that it was done. So in the late 60s, early 70s... Uh, when 1968 happens, there are riots outside Chicago. So then after that, they start democratizing the process. So beginning in the 70s, Democratic voters get to have more and more say. And I think that the, what happened in the, in the 70s when it shifted to primaries is that the media became like a, a much more central day-to-day actor in the, the presidential process. nomination process. 
It was the beginning of like the television era. I mean, in retrospect, back in like the in the nineties or something, you just thought that like history changed and it all became about television and that's the end of history. And now we know that it was actually just a finite period when television <laughs> was so central. But at the time, everything was mediated through a very relatively small number of very large media outlets who set the agenda and and created a narrative in a way that has, in my, in my opinion, completely fractured and fragmented since then. And that, I think, is a major reason why the whole concept of electability used to be much more stable. We had a much more stable image of who an electable candidate was, and then it all you know went to pieces with Obama and then Trump and then you know maybe Bernie Sanders. So what television was, I think, was the sort of like media primary. And mm. a candidate would go to Iowa or go to New Hampshire and say, I, I want to be president. And then the job of sort of relaying who this person was and whether they're a good candidate was really the job of uh, about 50 people in Washington and New York who told these people pretty much everything they knew about those candidates. And so one of the dimensions that the media used was this concept of electability, which of course they were deciding for themselves. Mm -hmm. If 12 major Democratic leaders and former candidates get together and say, hey, we like Joe Biden, then the Democratic electorate is likely to say, oh yeah, Biden. If virtually every person they see on TV in the news believes that somebody's a great candidate or more specifically, somebody's a terrible candidate, could never win, is crazy, you know, whatever. The panel on MSNBC the night that Bernie Sanders crushed it in Nevada was of two former Clinton staffers, <laughs> right? I mean, they right. don't want the progressives on there. It's, I mean, it's a real thing. But I think on the Democratic side, MSNBC plays a much smaller role in determining how the electorate thinks, certainly than Fox does on the Republican side. I actually, this is an empirical question, it would be interesting. Where do baseline primary voters get their information from? I mean, it is Facebook. true. It is, get it from yeah, Facebook. Facebook. It is true, <laughs> right. It, it, Chain I mean, emails. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think local media is still somewhat significant, but well, they take thanks, their cues yeah, from national media. Yeah. Um, I actually think this is the key to answering the question of why the age gap in this absolutely. and recent elections is so true. enormous, mm -hmm. is because... There is a huge gap in where people get their news depending on how old they are. And people who are, you know, 25 are not watching local news for but their... Even, but people who are 45 aren't watching local news. I mean, on the Cynthia Nixon campaign, we all thought things were going well because we were getting such great coverage. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, Cuomo came in and he was, you know, all in the local news, but also on paid media just for people who are watching Judge Judy and Jeopardy all day. Like he was dominating and no one I knew was watching the news. Oh, and no. so it was, we were all talking to ourselves and meanwhile, here comes Andrew Cuomo. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And sad. The question of electability, who is it most important to the media? to party leaders, or is it actually about the electorate? That's maybe a leading question. <laughs> well, I will say the most interesting thing about this election is not the candidates, but it is the electorate. It's the voters who are really having, like, the time trying to figure out who is electable, right? Where it used to be, it, it was much more about the candidates. Now it's really what's mm -hmm. going on in the voters' minds. The voters mind, yeah. But I, I don't think there's that much to distinguish like the powers that be in some of these cable networks and like the powers that be in Washington. They're all at the same cocktail parties, right? It's just, the, it's, it's a group think and you're leaving behind a huge part of the base. The, the establishment slept on Bernie Sanders two cycles in a row because no one in the establishment knows anyone who's voting for Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's a very divided world we're living in. 
I think that social media plays a role because it, it influences what people think other people think. And before it existed, their understanding of what other people thought was, well, again, it, was, it, was, it went through television. And I mean, that's not to say that social media gives an unbiased image. Obviously, it doesn't because of algorithms and, you know, filter bubbles. And, but I suspect that there's a lot of people like those Democratic elites you're talking about who have a distorted image of how popular their favorite candidate is mm-hmm. because they feel like they have a large number of people that on a daily basis, they hear their opinions, ordinary people, and it's a groundswell. It's, you know, everybody's for this candidate. You know, this discourse is maybe the most powerful weapon in the hands of a small elite group of people who want to rule out a certain kind of politics. And they literally can do it by making these decisions. And I don't think it's the case that the... Republican establishment, whatever it is or was, has ever felt that way about its right wing, which does not really threaten it materially. Whereas I think it's fair to say that corporate held media companies are materially threatened by a Sanders or even a Warren politics taking over the Democratic Party, or at least they perceive themselves to be. Mm -hmm. I think that the Republican elite, they, you're right, the, the material threat is less, but they still have jobs and contracts and consulting gigs and things like that that they want to preserve. And when Trump looked like he was going to be the nominee and lose in a landslide, they thought, uh, that really scared them. I think that everything in this conversation gets us a really long way away from that mathematical formula and the absurd, <laughs> Sorry about that. The absurd <laughs> idea that, um, no, in a good way, I think the absurd idea that you can calculate this, that there are so many different aspects of culture, media and power that go into the idea of who's electable, how that idea is wielded against the electorate itself, against candidates. Only time will tell if the electable candidate ends up being elected. Um, thank you so much, Seth. Rebecca, and thank you, Matt, for joining us. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. We've been checking in with Walter Shapiro mostly on the road, but today I'm lucky enough to talk to him in person on the state of the Democratic race and what the Biden campaign will look like going forward. Uh, Walter, I'm really glad to actually be talking to you in person. Oh, I know. I I can actually materialize. (laughs) Um, I think what I am most curious about, and I think what people listening are maybe most interested in, is simply the question of what's going to happen next. What does Joe Biden's campaign look like from here on out? Joe Biden's campaign looks like a campaign that is getting ready for a general election. Mm -hmm. Part of it is that even in normal circumstances, no Donald Trump, no coronavirus. Candidates have never figured out exactly what to do in the time between they have become the de facto nominee and the convention. Mm -hmm. You can't let vice presidential speculation go on for four and a half months (laughs) because that means that basically every single American would get their 15 seconds of being speculated as a Biden running mate. (laughs) Right. I mean... And this is a long-time problem. When Bob Dole became the Republican nominee in the spring of 96, he couldn't figure out what to do with himself. (laughs) And he ended up 
to make news resigning from the Kansas Senate seat that he so treasured. And after the campaign was over and he was a former senator and a defeated presidential nominee, he really hated having resigned. Mm -hmm. But it is this desperate idea that it is very hard to stay in the news and know what to do with yourself. And that is even when you can hold mass rallies, which is not going to be an option for Biden. I assume what we're going to have is a lot of town meetings, forums, panel discussions mm -hmm. of various people for various causes, whether it's coronavirus experts, whether it's student loan experts, Biden looking concerned <laughs> and asking them questions about what should we do from here. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense that, you know, are they going to limit his unscripted public appearances? Are they going to try to make him stick to the prompter? Oh, they're going to try to do everything. Mm -hmm. They are going to try to keep him to a prompter. At the same point, every major candidate who has been kept to a prompter, Al Gore in 2000, John Kerry for a good chunk of 2004, George W. Bush always, mm -hmm. um, Obama in 2008 to a large extent, Mitt Romney in 2012, Hillary Clinton in 2016, they all have been aggressively boring. <laughs> I mean, and this is part of the problem in a world where we treasure authenticity, mm -hmm. when it is one of Joe Biden's selling points, mm -hmm. to make Biden too scripted takes all of the air out of what Joe Biden is. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, every sentence that Joe Biden begins, no one, including Biden, knows precisely <laughs> where it's going to end up. Yeah, it's an interesting tension because, like you say, Biden is going to need a reason for people to cover his campaign even after it seems like the actual primary part of it is done. But at the same time, we, we have a national public health crisis. I think it has the potential, and correct me if I'm wrong, it has the potential to essentially suspend traditional campaigning for a while. Well, I think it will, yeah. which is to Biden's advantage in two ways. Number one, he doesn't have much to do until the convention to begin with. And number two, it brings back the idea that what you want in a president is competence. Mm -hmm. I thought one of the smartest things Biden did was immediately after winning his sweep uh, on Tuesday night, announce a coronavirus advisory council, mm -hmm. which is basically filled with prominent public health experts, the sort of people you'd feel comfortable if they were running the government response to advise him. And to a large extent, what Biden is selling is just the whole idea of we need to restore the way government used to work. And this crisis, which God knows nobody wished had happened, is a way for Biden to do that. So I'm wondering down the line, I mean, we are seeing major, major events get canceled, like South by Southwest, like the E3 video games conference. Uh, I mean, I was losing weight for Coachella. <laughs> um, is there a contingency for the conventions? Like, is there well, anything it, planned? There is an easy contingency mm. that in the absence of a convention, either the Democratic National Committee can arrange for a virtual convention where all delegates would cast their votes by some sort of electronic means, hopefully better than the electronic means used <laughs> in the Iowa caucuses. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the Democrats are set up so power 
would devolve to the Democratic National Committee, which is used to holding telephonic meetings. Mm -hmm. And since what we're dealing with, since the reporter myth of the contested convention, the great white whale of my entire career <laughs> of over 11 presidential races has receded yet again, we're back to the question of what is the purpose of, of going to Milwaukee? <laughs> yes, exactly. What is the purpose um, of going to Milwaukee? Than, other than spending four days listening to speeches read off teleprompters by people who are being yanked off stage at a rapid rate to make room for the next speaker in this carefully arranged minute-by-minute minute <laughs> production. You, I think, referred to it last time we talked on the phone, you referred to the conventions as an infomercial, basically, for the party. Yeah. And that would be missed out on. That would be missed out on, but they could create almost a fake backdrop Everyone could give speeches. They can still drop the confetti. They can still drop the confetti. <laughs> they could do all of this, and they could maybe put together a virtual audience. <laughs> well, in you know, other countries, I know in the UK, they have the party political broadcast, where it's basically they make it explicit that what this is is we've given over airtime to the party yeah. to make its case. Maybe we, this is a year we begin transitioning towards something like that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. To a large extent, there is nothing more edifying in journalism than 17,000 reporters chasing a non-existent story. <laughs> that the nominee is going to make a speech and announce a vice president. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we, we may or may not see you in Milwaukee, but uh, thank you so much for sitting down with us. <laughs> oh, but I, I, I will definitely be somewhere virtual. You will be. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Walter. Thank you. This is The Politics of Everything. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe. Please rate us. Five stars. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Five stars only. Five stars only. <laughs>